Good morning. If you're a church person this time of year, as a familiarity to it, you're familiar with the stories. You maybe grew up in Sunday school and you heard them. By the time I became a Christian when I was about 20 years old, I was not aware of the stories. So I've grown into them and grown to appreciate them. But you probably remember things like Mary and Joseph, and they were told about the baby that was coming on the way. And then Mary and Joseph, you know, if it was Sunday school, it's like, oh, what do we do? And Mary's got this predicament. She's got a child, and she hasn't been with uh, a man. And Joseph is betrothed to be married to her. And this woman he's betrothed to is now expecting. And it's a big tumbleweed of difficulty. And you're familiar with that because you remember stories like And there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And an angel of the Lord said to them, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That's for all the people born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So you remember all that. But what I'm wondering is, what if it was totally different? What if there were no angelic announcements? What if it just happened? I mean, try to imagine it for a moment. You're Mary, and you who are moms will have a sense of this. What's, What's going on? And you're Mary, and you know that you have never been with a man, and... You've got a child growing inside of you. Imagine the difference for her if she hadn't been told by the angel what's going to happen. Kind of try to get your head around that. I think most moms have a better chance of getting their head around that than the rest of us. And if you're Joseph and there was no word, no news... I guess Mary would break the news to Joseph and explain to him what's going on. And it would ramp the crisis up dramatically. And so it's quite gracious, I think, of God to have told them what he's getting ready to do. So we're going to focus our new series on this word, behold. And today, our simple focal point is Luke chapter 1, verse 31. This is the angel speaking to Mary, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. The word behold appears in the Bible a minimum, and this depends a bit on the translators and the English translations. It appears in the Bible a minimum of 680 times. So, like, this is a big deal, and it starts to get your attention. Behold is in there a lot. Why is this word so prevalent? Interestingly to me, a lot of the more modern versions, like the New Living Translation and New International Version, largely eliminate the word. They actually reduce it dramatically, and they use words like see or look. But those words are really thin compared to what the word behold means. There is this high concentration of the appearance of the word behold all around the birth of Jesus Christ. 
You can look through your Bible and find the word behold appearing through the Bible, but it's like there's this flood of that word showing up around the birth of Jesus Christ. Angels are telling people to behold. Joseph is told behold. Mary is told behold. The shepherds are told behold. And this word behold, I think it warrants our attention to talk a little bit about what it means, what it conveys, how it feels. It means a lot more than to look or to see. You could say, look, there's a red car driving by. And we would look and we'd see the red car driving by. And we would register things at about the level of a red car driving by. I don't know that anybody has said to you, behold, the red car driving by. But the laughter indicates that we get that something very different is being communicated. We said, behold, behold. Now, maybe it's a red Ferrari and maybe you're a car person And then it all lands a little bit differently. But you know, a red Toyota RAV4 driving by doesn't warrant the word behold. So behold means a lot more than to look or to see. It means something like to take it in, to pay attention, to notice, to discern, to understand. It has so many more dimensions of meaning to it than the words look or see. Okay, so why does the word behold appear? What's the deal with the word? Why do we need to be told to behold? Well, that's a pretty obvious answer because if we're not told to behold, if somebody doesn't get our attention, we're going to miss it. And so this word behold appears in the Bible so frequently And it so frequently is God speaking to people because God doesn't want us to miss it. Because God doesn't want us to miss him. So how is it that we could miss it? I suppose there are a lot of reasons, but the two biggest ones that come to mind for me are one, because it's so big that it's just beyond our intellectual grasp. It's so big that we don't have we don't have the intellectual firepower to grasp the magnitude and the fullness and the range of what's happening. And so we're told to behold it, like try to take it in, try to get your head and your heart around this if you could do it. The other one is you could miss it so easily. In a way, you could miss it because it's very subtle. And if you weren't paying attention, you would you'd just miss it. I think another way that we miss it is because it comes in a way that we never expected. And so God is telling us, behold, 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 something enormously big and beautiful is happening. And you got to give some real attention here to grasp. Or behold, this thing that appears ordinary to you, there's something extraordinarily remarkable in terms of a work of God unfolding right here. And it's easy for us to miss it if God didn't say to us, behold, or we didn't expect it. One of the reasons for this is I'm pretty sure once we begin to grow in our faith life, we begin to develop tracks or ruts that are the ruts upon we expect 
our relationship in our life with God to travel. So over the time, we develop these roads, these ruts, these tracks, and we relate with God on these frequently returned roads and ruts and tracks. And so we have a picture of our life, and we have things that we're praying for. And when we're doing all of this stuff, we're doing it down these roads that we have developed, that we have prescribed, that we understand is how we do our life with God. And so we're looking on the roads that we have prescribed, and we're saying, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? And all of a sudden, and God's over here. Because God doesn't just work on the prescribed ideas that we've got about life with him. And so often in the Bible, we're looking here, God, where are you? Where are you? I don't see you. Where are you? Where are you? I'm over here. I'm doing something over here. It's very different. Behold, I'm doing something over here. I was reading an article last summer in an art magazine, and it was an article written by a guy who was reflecting on how he developed appreciation for art. And he's looking back on a time when he was a novice. And he went to an art museum to look at some paintings by a famous painter. And he just kind of didn't get it. And so he went to visit a friend of his who's the curator of a fine art gallery. And he told him that he had gone to the exhibit. And the curator said, what'd you think? And he said, like, not much. He's like, really, why? What happened? He said, I, I don't know. I just, I'm not seeing it. And the friend said, well, I don't think you're doing the art gallery the right way. I don't think you're doing the museum the right way. He said, what do you mean? He said, I went to the paintings and I looked at them and I just didn't get it. He said, you don't look at a painting, you wait for it. You wait for it? Uh-huh. If you have the opportunity to be in the presence of, of really meaningful art, you don't look at it, you place yourself there and you wait for it. And of course the guy's like, come on, dude, are you kidding me? Like, wait for it, wait for it, like wait for my imaginary friend to come by. He said, no, no, he said, when you go to an art museum and you have the opportunity to see really fine art, make sure you're in a place where you can sit down and then you can sit in front of a painting and wait for it. So the guy says, like, what do you mean wait for it? He said, sit in front of it and consider it and look at it. Every angle of it, every aspect of it, the light, the people, the characters, the field of vision, the range, the use of color, the drama, the technique. Look at all of that. He said, okay, that's what I did. I looked at it. He said, no, no, no. He said, then you sit for a while and you wait for your mind to wander and cover every distraction that's in your head and every wandering thought that you've got. And then you come back and you sit and you look and you look and you wait for it. And of course the guy says, well, how long do you wait for it? And the answer, you guess where it's going, you wait as long as you need to wait till you begin to understand some of the depth and the meaning of a fine piece of art. So this, you know, would like change the idea of an invitation to go to the art gallery. Say, hey, Let's go to the art gallery and wait for some paintings. You want to go? And let's, we can go wait for some paintings. And the other person's thinking, you mean like while they're being unloaded off a truck, like a traveling display? And of course now, here's the crunch, right? Who has time to do that? And this is all part of what we're talking about, about beholding. In an age where our attention is being controlled by handlers, 
You know this, and I know this. Your attention and mine is being controlled by handlers, by algorithms, by all the pop-up ads that steer you every time you open your phone, by where you go and you see X or Instagram. Where our attention is being controlled by handlers, behold is an invitation to say, this is for the people who will take control of what they're attending to. And so we're invited to behold by God. Behold, because to miss this could be to miss God. And to miss God would be the biggest miss of life. And so isn't it gracious of God that he frequently says, behold, hey, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. Behold, because we don't want to miss God. We don't want to miss God in the big things that he's doing that are often bigger than we ever imagined. Sometimes they're because we're looking here and he's doing something here much bigger than we imagine. But I also suspect that we may miss God in the thousands of moments that happen through the course of a week that could be offered as beholding moments, God moments, and we miss them. Why? Because we're us and we live the lives we live in a culture we live in and we're really busy and we have a lot to do and a ton of email and we schedule 14 minutes for the art museum. That's why. But God wants you to know. He wants me to know and to see and to enter life with him and to be healed. And that's why he says, behold, so often. Mary Oliver, a poet, says, to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. Attention is the beginning of devotion. I've heard the phrase, maybe you've heard it too, that listening is the first act of love. Listening meaning really listening to another person, listening to them to try to understand them not to wait for them to shut up so you can say what you want to say, or not to wait for them to be quiet so you can fix them with the right answer and tell them what they should be doing. That's not listening, that's managing. But listening, real listening, is the first act of love. And Mary Oliver says, to pay attention, this is our endless and proper work. Attention is the beginning of devotion. If we're going to have devotion and love for God, attention toward him, will be the first act. And it will be an endless and proper work and a beautiful invitation. Okay, so beholding comes in the three tenses. Beholding from the past, beholding in the present, and beholding about the future. You know that God has called his people Israel, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, to remember. The word appears all the time. Remember, remember, remember. It's the past tense version of behold. Behold what I have done in your past. And the reason we behold what he's done in the past is to help grow our faith muscles and our trust in him for the living that we're doing today. Mary was told in Luke 131, behold, you will conceive in your womb. That's a future. It's coming soon. But in Isaiah 714, we have this prophecy from long past, 700 years before Mary was around. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to his son and will call him Emmanuel. 
Behold, don't miss it. Enter into what I'm trying to tell you. Be prepared for it. Seek to grasp it and understand it. Beholding from the past becomes a really important part of our life of beholding God. I remember when I was in seminary, I was at a point where I had to make a really big decision. And it felt like a life-defining decision. And in many respects, now that I look back on it, it was a life-defining decision, this particular one. And I was asking a bunch of people for some insight. What do you think I should do? And a lot of people had very Christian formulaic answers. Well, when it's like this, then it means this. Well, when God wants to show you this, then he'll do this. Well, and honestly, none of that was helpful to me. All very well-intentioned. I appreciated it. I went to another guy, and I asked him this same question, and he listened for a moment, and he said this. He said, David, when you have felt yourself at a crossroads in the past in your life, how have you seen or perceived God gave you direction and insight? So what he was saying was, look to the past, behold what God has done in your life when you've been in somewhat similar situations to this, and try to begin to think through that a bit as you pray about what you're doing ahead. What he was saying was, behold the past. And that was really helpful to me. But behold also has a present moment, what God is doing right now. And this invitation to behold, once it kind of gets in your skin, see, I have the advantage, I've been in this for now a couple months because I knew it was coming, you didn't. This is in my skin now. And so it's got me thinking, how many things am I missing? How many beholding moments am I just missing that are right here in the present moment in front of me? And actually, it's all really helpful to me because it teaches me to slow down, to listen better, to look, to observe, to enter. So there's the present moment of beholding, and then there's the future what God will do. Behold what I will do in the future. And this is the essence of Christian hope. Behold what I will do in the future. But all three tenses are really important. And so in Luke 1.31, we have this simple phrase to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and will call his name Jesus. A son, a son, a son from heaven into Mary's womb, from Mary's womb into the world, from the world onto a cross, from the cross into a grave, from a grave into heaven's eternal life, and from heaven's eternal life one day back into the world once more to heal and to save it all. A son. Mary, it seems to me, was a really good beholder. This phrase is very characteristic of her in Luke 2. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's like a beautiful way to describe beholding. And then I can't help but think, well, this is likely why God chose Mary. She was a really good beholder of what God is doing. Okay, so notice what happens now. Mary and Joseph are the first of the beholders. They're the first ones in the circle, the family of the beholders. And then as you read the Gospels, if you know them, 
the very first pageant of Christmas, the cast of characters come joining in, and it's the shepherds who are next. They're part now of this circle of beholders. They're joining Mary and Joseph, and I have this beautiful visual picture. It's as though God just keeps expanding the circle of beholders, and he keeps introducing them to each other, and they keep comparing their beholding notes and experiences about God, and in sharing and comparing them, they keep encouraging one another, and so their love for God and their appreciation for him grows all in that beholding community. And then you got wise men or astrologers who come from the east. They become part of the beholding community. And it's like it started in this little tiny seed of beholders, Mary and Joseph. And then that circle of beholders starts growing outward and outward and outward, and it expands. And in time, we see the disciples come into the community of the beholders, And then you see people watching and observing Jesus and some of them come and trust their lives to him and then they join the community of beholders and the beholding community is growing and growing as we read the gospels through the book of Acts and to this very day, we're part of the beholding community. It's actually been a helpful little thought to me when I drive by a church going down the road, I'm like, there's a beholding community I wonder what life is like in that beholding community. And then Hope Church, a beholding community, particularly as we come into Advent and move toward Christmas. The circle of beholders keeps moving outward. And what we're doing is that we are beholding together in devoted love. That's what worship is. It's beholding together in devoted love while we're waiting for what God will do and particularly that return from heaven's eternal life back into the world. So as we wait, we behold, and we keep sharing our beholding with each other. And as we behold, we wait, and we keep encouraging each other. So here's the question. Can you miss this? Can we just miss what God is doing? For sure, of course, the answer to that is yes. It's one of the reasons he keeps saying behold to try to get our attention. So what about behold when it comes to your story? Is it possible to miss God? Sure, sure. Why? Because this whole thing is not at all what anybody expected in terms of religion. I mean, religion, as most everybody had always known it, is rules, it's restrictions, it's various forms of superstition and karma codes of punishment, punitive moralistic legalism we've been talking about, but not a son. Behold, you'll bring forth a son. This is the epicenter statement of the Christian religion. Behold, you'll bring forth a son. And anybody who knows religion or has been around it is like, that's, that's not anything like religion in any way that I've ever known it. Religion is all of this stuff at rules and regulations and performance and appearance management, superstition, but a son? If it's a son, then it's a person. And if it's a person, then it's a relationship. 
And then this whole thing that's so different than anything anybody had ever seen before, and a wonder God is pouring forth the word behold around the birth of Jesus Christ. Because this, this thing, this religion is not a thing. It's not so much a religion. It's a person and a relationship with him. And it's not a performance religion, but a healing religion. A healing religion. And you know one of the biggest reasons you and I will miss it? Because of your wound. My wound, you say? Mm-hmm. Most of us, by the time we get to adult life, have a prevailing wound. Maybe a couple of cousin wounds that travel with it. But that prevailing wound begins to be the shell from which we manage our lives. What do you mean by a wound? What I mean is that place that we hold and that we harbor inside, it feels like shame or it feels like regret. It feels like pain or it feels like grief. We may have a lot of self-punitive voices about it. We are inclined often toward compensating behaviors as a result of our wound. This compensating behavior, that compulsive behavior. Sometimes it's not always easy to know where your wound is, but for many of us, I think if we're introduced to this idea, we begin to understand this quite readily. Where are you defensive in your life? Where does a conversation or a topic come to a certain place and you get defensive or anxious or emotional about it? This may help understand where a wound is. And what we do with our wounds, because they feel hard or embarrassing or shameful, of course, we hide them. We put them in a box and we have a wound box that's part of our lives. And some of us might think, well, I opened the box. I've already showed it to God. But this box, it's got more lids. There's more layers to most of our wound boxes. And one of the most prevailing ways we miss beholding God is our wounds. Now, we learn to be quite adept at managing our wounds. For some of us, what we do is we get more religious, more Christianity, more Christianity. That's what I'll do. I'll be a super Christian. I'll be more Christian than anybody could ever be. And that whole big thing is how I'm going to manage my wound. Sometimes what we do with our wounds is we just try to fix everybody else's wounds. And so we turn our attention toward everybody else's wounds because wounds make us so deeply want to be right. And so if I can spend my energy fixing your wounds and I can feel a little more right than you, and it makes my wounds feel a little less wounding. But what if we could completely trust the sun with our wounds? These wounds are memories they are conversations, their words, their tones of voice. We can remember the look on a face. We can remember the emotions of a moment, the trauma or the fear of it. 
We can remember the wallpaper behind them when they were talking to us. And so here's where this becomes quite challenging. What we've decided is that the wound is painful enough that we are not going to trust Jesus with it. We're going to do what sin always does. We're going to only trust ourselves instead of God. And that, you know, is the root issue of sin, choosing to trust ourselves over God. And so we keep our wound to ourselves. We entrust it only to our hidden places. We don't trust it with God. And this becomes quite an interesting challenge for us because when we think of sin, most of the time we think of sin as a moral issue. A wound, it could be something that was done to us. And so to call it sin, to not trust it to God, it is true. The root issue of sin is to turn away from trusting God and to trust ourselves instead. So we develop compensating behaviors or strong edges. Oftentimes, cynicism or sarcasm is wound management, trying to keep it all under wraps. A lot of times we can look at religion and say, I'm not doing that stupid stuff. And that intellectual arrogance is wound management. And so it's easy to miss beholding God because of our wounds. And so what we're being invited to do is to bring our wounds to the manger. And you know, many of us have seen various pictures or renderings of the wise men, you know, and they are showing up and they've got boxes and it's frankincense and myrrh and gold, right? But I think what Jesus wants for Christmas is your wound. And I think if you would like to behold him making you the person that he always hoped you could be, what he would like for Christmas is your wound. And what if, as Hope Church, a beholding community, we had this visual picture in our minds that when we come to Christmas, what we're all going to do is, is bring this to Jesus and we're going to create a, a pile of gifts around the manger. And it would become quite a large one. It'd be an overflowing tree with all of our wound boxes piling up, piling up, piling up around the manger. And when you do that, if you can, I would encourage you to tell him you're sorry for only trusting yourself with the wound, and he'll receive that gracefully. And then give your wound to him, the baby in a manger, and let him hold it, and let him do with it what babies do. Let him look at it and rattle it around and let him feel it. He might even put it in his mouth because that's what babies do with stuff. Give him your wound so much and then you can stand there and you can watch him look at it and hold it and then you can watch him rattle it and you can watch him maybe put it in his mouth and while you watch, you can be healed. Isaiah 53 tells us this about this son. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And behold, 
By his wounds, we are healed. Maybe this Christmas, all of us could give him our wound. I think it would make his holiday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, baby in a manger, not what we expected, not what we were looking for. All of us have our own story and we carry our wound boxes. And we pray, Lord, by your grace and your tender love that you would help us be able to experience the freedom and the love and the life and the remaking and the healing that comes from you as we move toward this Christmas. We pray this in your name. Amen.